Now, Lowell is out of town this weekend to be with family, I believe in Pennsylvania. And so you're getting a pinch hitter this morning. And I've already told a few of you that it'll probably be a shorter sermon than usual. And the glee that I saw when I told them that <laughs> makes me wonder. We are about to begin another cycle around the sun. Uh, we're going to celebrate a new year and the end of an old one. This will be the 75th New Year's that I will have been around. And I can tell you that tonight I will probably be in bed about the same time I was in that first one. <laughs> but as we revolve around the sun, that's what we're celebrating. But we have not always been able to technically track our movements around the sun. Several centuries went by before we established the calendar system we're under. We used to be under the old Julian. When I say we, I mean humanity. We used to be under the old Julian calendar. Uh, and that counted the year as 365.25 days per year. And uh, along came Pope Gregory the 13th, who commissioned to have a study done. And incidentally, that pope had a son. I don't know how they worked that out. But he commissioned that, and, but he only had rule over uh, those countries that uh, had been determined to be Catholic countries and the papal state. And when he had this commission done by the scientists of his day, they found that actually a day had to be upgraded to 365.2422 days per year. And because there was a calendar drift, and he wanted to correct that. And this happened back in 1582. So it, they determined that 10 days had to be subtracted from the calendar in order to get back on track. So if you went to bed on Thursday, October 4th, of 1582, then you got up on Friday, October 15th of 1582. And gradually this was adopted as the civil calendar for all the countries around the world. Now, now that I've given you that useless piece of trivia, uh, I know that one of the things that happens every New Year's is that people make New Year's resolutions. And maybe you've made some. Uh, it might involve, well, I gotta lose some weight yeah, this doesn't last very long. Uh, or the development of some new social skill or some improvement to our character, some things that uh, you have in a list maybe made and written down that you're going to look at, and you probably got it maybe uh, taped to your bathroom mirror so that you look at it as you begin the day tomorrow and know this is how I'm going to begin moving forward in that way. But there are some others that I've run across I'd like to share with you. Uh, and uh, you might want to write these down because these, I think, are easier to keep. This year, I'm going to exercise my right to eat chocolate. <laughs> Secondly, I will try to remember where I left my keys at least once a week. <laughs> Thirdly, I'm going to become a morning person starting at noon. <laughs> I want to perfect the art of pretending to listen during Zoom meetings. And I vow to respond to emails with more emojis and less actual content. I promise to keep up with the latest technology, even if I have to ask my grandkids for help. I'm going to attend more social events to show off my impressive collection of dad jokes. 
I resolve, uh, Sarah Bullen, this is for you, I resolve to do more yoga, even if it's just the lying down and pretending to be a log pose. <laughs> I'm going to aim for a balanced diet by ensuring that the pizza toppings include all four major food groups. And finally, I'm going to resolve to organize my sock drawer because life's too short for mismatched socks. Now, we, we look at New Year's resolutions. We think to ourselves, yeah, we, we always make these. We always don't keep them. Some of them are still paying for gym memberships that you only use twice in the past year. But my suggestion is to make only one, and it will change your life. And I'm going to suggest it to you this morning. And the basis for my suggestion is found in the Old Testament in the character of King David. And, and this may seem like a radical idea about uh, a New Year's resolution to look to David in the Old Testament. But when we look at David, we find that he was the youngest in his family. Uh, when Saul fell out of disfavor with God and he was going to be replaced, God sent Judge Samuel to uh, Jesse's household to look at the various sons, the eight sons that he had. And as he looked at each one, in, as they descended in order of age, they all looked uh, robust and uh, physically capable, but as Samuel looked at them, he says, is this the best you have? And he says, well, I've got one more, but he's out tending the sheep. He's the runt of the litter. He's the youngest. Uh, and uh, he came in because David was a shepherd. And Samuel didn't see the potential in David, but God did. And so when God tells Saul that he's going to take his kingdom away. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, he says, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And what God is talking about there is, uh, or what Samuel is talking about there is David is a man identified as being after God's own heart. And in Acts 13, 22, in the New Testament, Luke records for us, after removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him, this is God, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And we read in the book of 1 Samuel the exploits of David as he is being groomed to be the king of Israel. And about the time that the Israelites were fighting against the Philistines, and the Philistines had a champion by the name of Goliath who came out and challenged one of their best to come out and meet him in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and that would decide who would win the war. And the thing about Goliath is the scriptures say he was a giant. That is, he was taller. Now, I don't want to get into the technicalities of the text that were handed down. Some have said that... Uh, they call them the Masoretic text, that Goliath was six feet, nine inches tall, which is tall even in our day. He'd be a good forward in the NBA. Uh, but some texts uh, identify him as being nine feet, six inches tall. I'm going to tend to go to the six foot nine because that seems to be more realistic and it was more abundant in the text. But even at six nine, he would strike fear into the hearts of a shepherd boy who had been out in the fields tending his sheep, even though he'd killed a bear and a lion. So David took up the challenge, you remember, in that he went out with no armor at all, because the armor did not fit him. He wasn't that big. 
And he didn't take a big sword with him. He took five smooth stones. And he put one in a sling, and it sunk into Goliath's forehead, and he died. And David became a champion. And then Saul recognized his potential, and he loyally served King Saul. And even though he served Saul, there was this, this uh, refrain that went out among the Israelites that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He became a military hero. And so Saul sought to kill David because of the jealousy with his acclaim. Uh, and David remained loyal to Saul even as he was trying to take his life. So eventually he is installed as king over Judah and Israel. And he had, for the most part, a glorious reign. And even as we get into the New Testament, it talks about King David. David being an ancestor of Jesus. And, but even as a man after God's own heart, David had some hideous sin in his life. So let's talk about that sin. Now, you children in here, if we were going to rate the story of David found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 the movie rating system would probably have this done at least as PG-13, or maybe even R. So, but it's in the scriptures, so we're going to go forge ahead. First, Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, which was his commander in the field, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, now that should have sent off signals to David right then and there. This, this woman's already betrothed to somebody else. And David had two or three wives at this time himself. So it's not like he lacked for companionship. But such was the lust that arose in David that he sent for her. He sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home. And as a result of this, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Okay, I don't know who the messenger was that she sent to tell David this, but I imagine when David heard this, he began to think, hmm, I got a problem. I've committed a sin. Now, how am I going to deal with this? And so he begins to cover up. Continuing with verse 6. So David sent his word, this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Now, <laughs> David didn't really want to hear anything from Uriah about what was going on in the field and the battle and so forth. But he wanted Uriah to come home and to be with his wife after he got this message that she was pregnant because, after all, he'd been in the field all this time. He goes home. The natural course of events should be that people would assume that the child that would be born would be his. So when Uriah came to him, verse 7, David asked him how Joab was. How's Joab doing? How the soldiers were and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. I, that's uh, in the Hebrew. Wash your feet means something else, apparently. 
So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. So he's not only trying to send him home, but he's going to sweeten the pot by giving him a gift. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Okay, so this is thwarting David's plan to cover this up. So David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go down to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So do we see in this attempt to cover up that Uriah, who had been sinned against by David, has more integrity that he would not go home and enjoy the pleasures that he could have legally and lawfully enjoyed and was encouraged to enjoy because his fellow soldiers and his commander were out in the field and they were denied those things. And so he stayed in the entrance to the palace. And so there's a second attempt. And that's beginning in verse 12, an attempt at the cover-up. David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Okay, now I want you to keep in the back of your mind how David has been described in the Scriptures as a man after God's own heart. So he tries to get Uriah drunk, but in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. So even in a drunken state, he still has more integrity than the king. So then there's a third attempt at a cover-up, and this is more dire. And again, remember the phrase, a man after God's own heart, beginning in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. He writes this down, gives it to, jo uh, to Uriah, and Uriah is carrying this back and has so much integrity he doesn't even look at this secret document. He wouldn't make a very good spy, but he was a very good servant of his king. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were and when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in Uriah, uh, David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Uriah's integrity was such that he carried his own death warrant in his hand and did not read it and handed it over to Joab. So the third cover-up appears to be successful. Now we can make things right. Uriah's dead. She's a widow. So beginning with verse 18, Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
And the messenger set out, and when he had arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance at the city gate. And then archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Now, at this point, David is thinking, What's wrong with my men? His sin, the attempted cover-up, was in the background. He wasn't even thinking about this until the messenger said, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Okay, it's, it's done. It's completed. Today, in this moment, in this situation, David would be the perfect politician. And Bathsheba mourns the death of her good husband for a respectful period. And then she goes and becomes David's wife, and the secret is safe. Beginning with verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is a man after God's own heart who has done some of the most hideous things in this sin that compounds itself as it moves along. And yet he is described not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. He's an ancestor of the Redeemer who came to this earth from heaven to redeem mankind. And yet he's considered a man after God's own heart. Well, he gets confronted by his sin. In chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan, a prophet, to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. And he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, if Nathan were telling this story to me today, he would make that a cat. But, <laughs> but, uh, but this one little ewe lamb belonged to this poor man compared to what the rich man had. It says, Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, as David is listening to this parable given by Nathan, his sense of justice is aroused. Verse 5 says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said, you are the man. Now, I, I've got to wonder to myself what David must have felt internally when he hears that pronouncement from Nathan, you are the man. There was repercussions from this sin. Again, beginning in the latter part of verse 7, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, and your master's wives are into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah 
And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You stuck down, struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with their wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally confesses and confronts his sin. Now there's repercussions to that sin. And there's going to be problems. He's going to have a son that we'll read about later in the scriptures named Absalom, who rebels and tries to take over from his father. And his son Absalom, whom he loved, ends up dying and giving David even more grief. But then we find in the scripture that this man after God's own heart, who sinned in such a hideous way, obtained mercy from God and forgiveness. Continuing in verse 13, Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Now David is going to wrestle with his sin. Continuing with verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him what the child, that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, they asked? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Okay, so David is struggling with what's happening as a result of his sin, and he's trying to plead with God not to punish him in this way, but God gives him punishment. It's the repercussion of his sin. And when we sin, we have repercussions. I don't know anybody in this room who has committed sin as grievous as what we read about here from this man after God's own heart. But he's punished for it. And when we sin, we'll be punished for it. But then we find something changing in David. Verse 20. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. This is not the behavior they were expecting. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. 
And the Lord loved him. Now, too often, this is why, where I'm getting at to the one resolution we can make this year. Too often, people drag their sins with them and continue to grieve over them even after God has forgiven. This holiday season, my wife somehow cajoled me into sitting down and watching three times the Christmas, not the Christmas story, but uh, the Ebenezer Scrooge story, Christmas Carol. <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge is actually one of my favorite characters at Christmas time, but that's another issue altogether. That's my sin. But one of the things I noticed in that story is that when his deceased partner, Jacob Marley, appears to him, he's dragging around chains. And uh, the, the thought is that with each sin and transgression, he had forced his own chains that he's now dragging through eternity with him that's holding him down. And I would suggest to you that Jacob Marley is actually teaching us a lesson about how we, when we commit our sins and we forget the mercy and grace of God, we continue to grieve over those sins and they drag us down. We are pulling into our lives every single day things that have long since been in our past that have been forgiven by the Lord through his mercy and grace and still they drag us down. They are sins that haunt. Now, I'm not arguing for mitigating the seriousness of sin or that there are no repercussions because there certainly are. But they should not be sins that haunt us into perpetuity because they rob us of joy. As we celebrate a new year, there is joy to be found in this coming year. And do we look for that joy? Or are we constantly going back and replaying our lives over and over again, those sins that are going to drag us down and that we drag into 2024? The New Year's resolution, I think, is best stated by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 21, where he writes, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I think this resolution that I want to make this year, that I hope you will join with me in making, is best summed up again in the, by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Brothers and sisters, he writes, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, one resolution I've made, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, 
I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Will you make that resolution with me? Will you let 2024 give you all the joy that God intends you to have? Can you trust that God is a merciful and gracious God and does forgive? And once he has forgiven, he's wiped that clean. We're made new creatures. Make that resolution for 2024. Would you bow with me, please? Holy God, our Father in heaven, I thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. I thank you, Father, for the lessons taught to us by the lives of those that you have called to serve you, but who fall and failed and sinned, and how you have shown that in your mercy and grace to them, Father, you have given us an example of what you have in store for us. Father, I pray that any here this morning who are dragging around with them sins of past for which you have forgiven will free themselves from that and enter this new year restored in their relationship to you and finding the joy that belongs to those who are in your son's kingdom. Father, we thank you for the grace you show.